0: We are, uh, I was just about to say, we're finishing up a series today. Before JR uh, is back up here in the pulpit next Sunday and joining us, I'm looking forward to that and hearing from him the next couple of weeks. But we're finishing up in a series called Things Jesus Didn't Say. Things Jesus Didn't Say. Now, why in church would you look at and make it a focus from the pulpit? To look at the things that Jesus didn't say. Well, because this world is not just made up of Jesus. Right? It's made up of people like you and I. Who may take some things and we internalize it. And no matter the intentions of the person who originally said what they had to say. And how clear it seemed it was to them. And how true it is. We can internalize it, and it can be a whole other kind of truth to us, right? In the first place, Jesus' words are not just of this world. They're like out of this world. They have a whole other dimension to them, and a whole other kind of truth to them that we do need to look at. And sometimes to realize... What he's really saying, sometimes it is helpful to consider what he hasn't said, what he did not say. What I might have said is not what Jesus was saying there. The first thought that I think when I hear something that Jesus said sometimes is definitely not what Jesus was saying. The disciples were in that place numerous times, were they not? Where they thought that they heard and they said, oh, teacher, we get it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees thought, oh, we know what he's talking about now. And there's other times that they thought, how can he say that? Where is he coming from? And they were totally wrong in what he was saying. The truth that he was speaking Because it wasn't just from this world. It wasn't just what matched up with their circumstances. So we've been finishing, we're finishing that up today. We're going to be in Luke 23 if you want to turn there. But as we have the last several weeks, I want to start with a couple of things that Jesus definitely did not say. He definitely did not say, Blessed are those at Mount Helena Community Church who wear their church merch on a Sunday morning. For theirs is the kingdom of God. He didn't say that. He didn't say, as often as you gather, share in eating zucchini bread in the season and drinking pumpkin spice lattes in remembrance of me. Those of you who know me know this is, there's no way this is a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> this is a PG Tips tea, baby. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, come follow me. And no one will fight in the car on the way to church service this morning. (laughs) He didn't say that. This morning we're going to be looking at the topic of guilt. And what Jesus didn't say was that you get what you deserve. It was expected of Jesus on numerous occasions to answer their question. To respond to the scenario or the situation and say, prepare yourself. You're about to get what you deserve. There's feelings in us of guilt at times. And those feelings are doing just that. They're trying to prepare us for some of the worst that could happen, that might be coming my way. They help feelings of guilt. We nurture them because they justify the loss The hurt, the pain, the anguish that we're going through. And in a kind of a sick way, they're kind of like a salve to something that we're feeling and that we're experiencing. And yet Jesus had some other things to say about guilt. Am I the only person in the room that has dealt with feelings of guilt or has to continue dealing with feelings of guilt? Did you know that food is one of the leading areas that people experience the most amount of guilt? (laughs) They say that 29% of us, or one third of us, deal with feelings of guilt over food. Now granted, men for about 20 minutes, and then it's over, right? But one third of us deal with feelings of guilt that are connected and related to food. Then there's mom guilt, right? You poor moms. You poor moms, right? You, you may feel guilty whether you work or not. It's a tough decision. I remember when Rebecca and I were processing those things. Like each kid, each addition in our family, each time a kid came along, we had to reprocess and reenter this journey with God and try and suppress guilt. Should my wife be working or she, should she not be working? She should come home and be with the kids, shouldn't she? What about her ministry? What about her calling? What about her giftings? For us, it turned into more like how long should she be home? When should she return? But even in returning, there's a sense of guilt. Really? Should I be here? Especially when trouble or resistance comes. Feelings of guilt saddle themselves to us. There's the moms who have all the home-baked goods that they bring to the party versus some of us who just swing into Safeway Bakery, and that's good enough, (laughs) right? There's feelings of guilt. There's general guilt. I don't want to let people down. There's feelings of guilt about things I've said even well-meaning things that could be taken in ways that I didn't even realize before I said it. And then I, I really can't believe that that's what came out of my mouth. And that's how that communication was received. And I have feelings of guilt. What about feeling guilty whether you say no or yes? Guilty for saying no, guilty for saying yes. There's Christian guilt even, right? We don't pray enough ah, I missed a day on my devotional again. I'm I'm starting over. Maybe some of you follow that YouVersion app, and it tracks in some of those apps, right, whether you've done your devotional yet or not. Some of our kids came home from youth camp this summer, and they said, we're going to commit together for 30 days to, to be in the Word and to do our devotional online, and now you can track your friends in that group and whether they have been a part of the devotional or not that day. How crazy is that? But I love it that our kids committed to it, but I don't think that God wants them feeling guilty for missing a day here or there. He doesn't want them separated from his word and feeling like I I can't return because I can't I can't keep up with it. Now I'm too far behind. Feeling guilty because we don't serve enough. We don't make enough time in our day or in our week. To serve. There's so many variations of guilt. Sometimes I feel guilty leaving the dog at home. Just closing that door and putting her back in there. And we're going to tootle off and have fun, but I can't take the dog. And I, Celie, I'll see you when I get home. Oh, Just that tension of walking away. Guilt because our closets are full and kids and people in Liberia don't have enough. And yet we want more. Guilty when we fail, and at times we feel guilty because we succeeded. The power of guilt. Maybe you feel guilty because you worked so hard and committed your whole self to your marriage and to your relationship, and it still didn't work out the way you thought it would work out. We're looking at sin and guilt this morning in Luke 23, and there are some characters in there with Jesus who were very guilty, and Jesus who wasn't guilty of anything. And contrary to how people thought the conversation would go, Jesus said some words that were out of this world, that were not the kind of response others would give here on earth. Before we start to look at the last hours of Jesus' life in Luke 23, I want to set the stage and say for being the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he was in a place that was quite contrary to what most expected that day and in that season and the culmination that they thought, the party that they thought was ahead. Instead, the king of kings was not wearing a crown of gold, but he was wearing a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by servants and his disciples and those faithful, faithful followers that had been he had gathered over the last three years, he was surrounded by thieves and by criminals. Instead of sitting on a throne, he was hanging on a cross there before them having this conversation. We're going to pick up in Luke 23 verse 32. This morning I want you to pay attention to some of the numbers with me. The verse starts out and it says two other men. Can you repeat after me? Two other men. There were two other men there. Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him or Jesus there along with the criminals. The other two, one on his right and the other on his left. Let me ask you a question. How many people were hanging there on the crosses? Three, right? There were three people there. It wasn't just Jesus being crucified for what they were accusing him of. But there were these two other men. Some versions say thief, I'm going to come back to that. But for a moment, I want to talk about the death, a death of crucifixion. It was reserved for some of the worst criminals. No matter what we think about the accusations against Jesus and how minimal they might be and how unprosecutable they might be, the death by crucifixion was the worst of the worst in terms of dying and in punishment. It was actually meant to be a deterrent. It wasn't just to follow through with punishment, but it was like the worst kind of deterrent that the authorities could put into place over somebody. It was reserved for slaves or for the worst criminals because it was one of the wor- most horrible forms of death that was punishment. Physically, it was atrocious spiritually for Jesus and not just Jesus, but even for many families. If they had somebody who was related to them, who was crucified, it was much more treated like a curse upon the family. Not just a loss, but it had like a spiritual element to it, like a curse. A sort of shame that could not be shaken. The word excruciating comes from these kinds of crucifixions. X means out of, and crew means the cross. And that kind of excruciating pain, the word excruciating comes from that kind of punishment, that of death on a cross. And so when we read or you hear those verses in a song, like death, death on a cross, it's Easter to you and I, but to people of this time, It's much more excruciating. And it says then in Scripture that he was nailed to a cross. He was nailed to that excruciating experience. And we're not talking like a nail like this. Not a nail of this size, but we're talking about nails like of this size. A seven-inch nail here in the wrist near the palm area of the hand, holding him to the cross, and holding his feet down at the bottom of the cross. It was a kind of death that was not a bleeding out, though it started with a scourging and with a whipping, where the Roman soldiers at the time would strip the person down, their shirt would be off. I'll never forget the first movie Rebecca and I went to. We weren't a thing yet. I was wondering if we might become a thing. I knew that she obviously was a Christian, but a number of friends and people here at Mount Helena Community Church were going to take in the passion of the Christ. And I thought, well, we could be a thing. We're going to sit next to each other. Here we are sitting right here. And yet I went through a whole nother experience watching that movie for the first time in the theater. And watching that scourging with those whips and those soldiers, what Mel Gibson portrayed in that movie of all the pain that led up to the cross, that wasn't the cross, all that happened before it. Oftentimes that whip had glass or nails or metal shards braided into it. And a lot of blood would be lost there and a state of shock would begin Before you were stripped naked. Many criminals, I don't know about Jesus for sure, we see the crosses, rightfully so. He's wearing a loincloth, but also in numerous cases, they weren't wearing anything. When they said naked, they meant naked because of the shame that needed to be associated with it, because of the deterring factor that they were trying to put in, the fear factor that they were trying to put into people. It was a, more of a death of asphyxiation, pure exhaustion, because it could also take days to die. In an act of mercy, in a wicked, perverted act of mercy, oftentimes, sometimes they would break the legs or the kneecaps of the criminal on the cross to keep it from going from going. Day after day after day. Many worried about that. Some worried about it, I suppose, on that day because of the words said in Scripture in the book of Isaiah that not even a bone would be broken. Four soldiers standing there until the process was done, that in some way they might be called on for an act of mercy. I want to turn our attention to the other two that must have been on the cross. Some of you know the story. We're going to look at it in a little bit more detail again, getting focusing on what Jesus said in the moments that he's going through, moments of excruciating pain. As people gathered, there were these two criminals, one to the right and to the left. Some versions say, thief, I have no idea what kind of crime they committed what they could have possibly stolen from somebody who they must have really ticked off in the form of stealing that would lead to crucifixion. But I assure you, they weren't pickpockets. They weren't jaywalkers. They'd committed some pretty serious crimes. Who knows what was written above their head? But as people gathered and they mocked Jesus, they cursed him, they spit on him, Jesus began to pray and what he didn't pray weren't words of saying, Father, send the cockiest angels that you have available to destroy them and to stop this. What he didn't pray was to stop it. What he didn't pray was to disable them or to punish them or to curse them. I might have prayed something like, give them explosive diarrhea right now. <laughs> he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Wow. In verse 39, picking up in the story to get to what Jesus says, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him saying, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Really? In all of his arrogance and his pride, even though he's very guilty and he has no fear of God, he has no need of a Savior, he's saying, save yourself and us. If you are God... Spare all three of us. But the other criminal, in verse 40, it says, rebuked him, saying, Do you fear God? Really? I can't believe that just came out of your mouth. You have no fear of God? Since you are under the same sentence, I'm sorry, don't don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He felt like it's The process for the two criminals he felt like was very just and was right and it was deserved. That they actually needed to get what was coming them, what was coming to them. Can you help me finish these next phrases? It's a lot more fun with your participation, okay? I'm sure, I'm confident that you've heard these phrases. What comes around... What past will, uh, excuse me, your past will come back to, right? You make your bed, then you've got to lie in it or sleep in it, right? And I think that criminal had a distinct difference in the other criminal on the other side of him. Where one felt like, yeah, if you're God, then save us both. Prove yourself by saving and getting us all out of here, out of the jam that we're in. But that's kind of the way the gangs and the criminals relate, right? Don't just save yourself. Save my hide, too. And yet the other criminal is showing a heart of repentance. Though he's guilty, though he's condemned, though he already feels like he's deserving. He's saying this is right. There's a part... A sick part of me, I have to admit as well, that does kind of like that. Not in a crucifixion sort of way, but how about in a speeding sense? Have any of you ever been passed by somebody going down the interstate who just left you? Left you in the dust, 90 miles an hour, only for you to come over a couple of hills down the road and see, Woo! Smoky's got him! <laughs> and who doesn't have the feeling inside like... Yes! You got what you... Unless it's you. Right? I kid you not. In a drive back from the state wrestling tournament in Billings one year, Rebecca and our little baby Adela came with me and unfortunately they were sick and all the other coaches were sick and my wife spent three miserable days with the baby in the hotel and the top of the metro and we finished the state wrestling tournament and i was to the car so quick as soon as the kids got loaded on the bus i was out there and i was gonna get to helena as fast as we could i kid you not i got three speeding tickets between billings and helena in the same night and the bus still beat me to helena that was the worst part I was thankful for $20 tickets back then. And I can see why that doesn't exist anymore. Because of people like me. <laughs> right? Unless it's us. Come on, I do, do I really deserve that? Come on, can you go light? Can you just give me a warning? What if I go up here before the judge? Can I get it lessened? In verse 41, it says, We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I can't imagine what he must have been feeling, and he thought that he might get, knowing he was deserving of what he was getting. And just asking in a faint way, would you remember me? I'm convinced having no idea he'd be in any sort of proximity to Jesus. Jesus didn't say, again, it's helpful every once in a while to take a look at what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, I never liked you anyway. You're deserving of hell anyway. You're about to get what you deserve Jesus didn't say it's too late he didn't say it's too late he didn't say you had a chance you were in the crowd this is not true I'm being hypothetical but he didn't say you heard me at the sermon on the mount he didn't say you were outside the temple weren't you That time when I, you had a chance. He didn't say, what were you thinking? He didn't scold him. He may have had opportunity well before the cross, but Jesus didn't bring any of it up. He didn't say, you missed it. He didn't say, sorry, there's not a last chance for you this is what Jesus did say to a guilty man. To a criminal who couldn't do anything to earn his standing with God, God said. To a criminal who couldn't walk straight, couldn't walk the straight and narrow because now his feet were nailed to a cross. To a criminal who couldn't perform good works because his hands were were nailed to that same cross, to a criminal who couldn't turn over a new leaf because his life was receding in that very moment, to a criminal who couldn't join a church because this was his last day to live, to a criminal who couldn't, even in his slight repentance, couldn't be baptized, couldn't turn to God's word, couldn't go share with anybody else, he had his eyes fixed on Jesus and said, Jesus, will you remember me? Why would he think that he had a chance of being remembered in the last moment of his life? I don't know. And Jesus looked at that sinful man who was guilty, who was hanging there shamed and had repentance upon his heart. And this is the answer Jesus gave him. He said, truly, or if you will, the truth is this, you today will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say you get what you deserve. It's out of this world. Do you hear the supernatural dimension to it, even for your own life? It's not fair. It's not according to justice. This man's guilty and he is not. He's deserving of death and Jesus clearly is not. I've had a life in my childhood where I lied to save my hide. I stole to get what I wanted. I cheated to keep from getting punished. I had hatred in my heart. I didn't like authority. And I battled with lust, wanting to be loved, wanting to have attention and acceptance. And I battled with shame and brokenness and abuse and abandonment. And you may say that even as a kid, I wasn't guilty and I wasn't deserving. But that's not God's word. He's saying there's none of us who don't deserve what that criminal, that thief, if you will, knew that he deserved. And even as a kid, I knew that I deserved Worse than what I experienced and what I thought. I can remember as a kid at moments, at times, laying on my own bed, feeling so bad and feeling so trapped and feeling so abandoned that you picture yourself dead. I wasn't suicidal, but there was this sick desire in me that wanted to cling to an end like death. It's because it was reflective of a spiritual death that was resident inside of me. It was the Holy Spirit trying to reach to me in words of love and acceptance and understanding and trying to get hold of a kid laying on his bed, wallowing in his sorrow and his abandonment, in his deception and his lies, saying, I love you and I gave my life for you. It's not what you deserve. It's what I've done for you. And I'm doing this for you, not because you deserve it. Ephesians, Ephesians 2 will preach. Verses 3 through 5, it says, like the rest. Does it say two? It doesn't say two, does it? It says, like the rest, like all of us. Paul is now speaking. And he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our own transgressions. Just said this last week, and it's worth repeating. Mercy is not getting the punishment you know you deserve. That's mercy. But it continues in verse 8. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's by what? It's by grace. What is that grace? What's grace? Grace is getting the good you know you don't deserve. It's getting the good or the blessing that you know you don't deserve. That criminal was convinced he didn't deserve what Jesus was just giving him. In asking to be remembered, truly I'm telling you, you will be with me in paradise. Are you kidding me? Greatest, richest, most eternal exchange to ever happen. Because Jesus was making a way. And there's a part of me that can't help but identify with that thief on the cross. I've never been on a cross, been around a crucifixion like all of you in this room. But hopefully that's not what makes us identify. I too, laying on that bed as a kid, wanting and desiring to be dead. When people talked about a spiritual death, even as a kid, and what a rebirth is, it made sense to me about a new nature being created in me, a new gift of God by the grace of God, this process of being born again, a rebirth happens in you and changes you and changes your outlook. From that day forward in a Sunday school classroom a few blocks down the street, I have never never experienced the feelings of abandonment that I had experienced before because I know that God visited me that day. He came near to me and he's dwelled in me ever since and my thinking has never been the same since. I've never, I don't ever recall having any of those same feelings laying on my bed or anywhere else feeling like I want to die because Jesus gave his life for a dead person to come alive. That criminal was experiencing and was as close to death much more close than any I believe of us here in this room. He was as good as dead. And in a moment, yet that day Jesus said, I'm giving my life and you'll be with me in paradise. I guarantee. Jesus gives us so much more than what we deserve. I don't want to uh, seem like it. I haven't gone through uh, seminary at all. I've taken a couple of Bible courses here or there. I've never been through a class like numerology, which is the study of the spiritual significance of numbers in the Bible. But it's fascinating. You don't have to go through seminary to look at some of it and to be intrigued and sucked in by it. Bear with me, if you will. Some of the numbers in general in the Bible represent different things like the number one represents unity and it represents God. The number four represents earth and the number five grace. The number seven perfection and many of you I think know that the number six represents the weakness of man or the schemes of the enemy. The evil one, the mark of the beast being 666, right? But the number 8 represents new beginnings. 10 represents testing. And the number 40 represents trials. There is an exhaustive list of what numbers represent in the Bible. But the number 3 represents wholeness and completeness with God. For instance, God is the Trinity. He's three in one. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are created in His likeness. We have a triune nature as well. We are body, soul, and spirit. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing and He's omnipotent or all-powerful. Revelations describes God who was, who is, and is, and is to come. God's grace manifests justification, sanctification, and glorification. In the Old Testament, there's three main patriarchal figures that stand out in all of the Old Testament. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tabernacle was built and designed by God in three sections, an outer court, an inner court, and the holy of holies. Angels cried out to God three times, Holy, Holy, Holy holy, a completeness, a wholeness that's deserved and reserved for God. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jonah prayed in the belly of the, the whale for three days before God had him spit out. In the New Testament, in the life of Paul, he was blinded for three days. He prayed three times for the thorn to be removed, if possible. He was stranded on Malta for three months after being shipwrecked at sea. The New Testament itself is made of 27 books, which is like three times three times three. Jesus himself was born, and we all know, visited by three wise men who brought three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, separated from parents for three days. His public ministry lasted three years, starting when he was 30, and he died at the age of 33. There were 12 disciples, three in the inner circle, who were Peter, James, and John, and they're the ones who witnessed, they're the three who were with him, and witnessed the transfiguration And Jesus with two others. They're also the ones who prayed with Jesus in the garden. Jesus predicted Peter would deny him three times. And Peter did deny him three times. And God was still perfecting something. He was still completing something. Jesus expressed his love and his grace for Peter three times. God spoke audibly to Jesus just three times. Some of us feel like we've already surpassed that. I've only heard once from God. Jesus heard three times in an audible sense. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and of course, Lazarus. He prayed three times that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tradition says he fell three times while carrying the cross, though that's not in the Bible. It's not scriptural per se. But Jesus was one of three prosecuted and condemned to die on a cross through crucifixion. The sign above his head Said, King of the Jews, and it was written in three languages in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Placed on the cross at the third hour of the day, the earth began to tremble and darkness fell on the land for three hours. At the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., to you and I, Jesus declared three words of victory It is finished. The world waited for three days. On day one, nothing additional happened. On day two, nothing happened. But on day three, the tomb was empty, the stone was rolled away, and Christ had risen. Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. And he said to that criminal, despite what he expected to hear in response, despite what the crowd expected to hear, he said, the truth is, you will be with me in paradise. He said that to his, and to our feelings of guilt and unworthiness, no matter how unlovable he felt or we feel, no matter how much shame we've gone through, Jesus does not say, You get what you deserve. He has a rescue plan. He has a plan to thwart you getting what you deserve. And he wants your love. He wants your devotion. He wants to accept you. I'm telling you, I'm not here because I get what I deserve. I don't deserve to stand up here. I don't deserve to be back here. I don't deserve the family that I have. I don't deserve... The future that I do feel like is in front of me. But God, but God has something to say. And he has something to give that we can't deserve, that we can't manufacture, that we can't make up on our own. I want to finish with this scripture in Psalms 103. Verse 10, he says, He, or God, does not punish us for all our sins, He does not deal harshly with us, I want to say, as we think, as we feel, as we believe. But scripture says, as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Not because we deserve it. Because it's his plan. It's his intention. It's what he's doing in our lives. It's his rescue plan. Hear me in finishing saying, Jesus did not die to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people come alive. He doesn't expect you to enter into a relationship with Him in order to become good, in order to turn from bad. His rescue plan is to take you from the death track that you're on, the wish and the desire, the thing that nobody here can escape, and to turn it into life and fruitfulness and abundance, love and acceptance, by having mercy on us, by not giving us what we know we deserve, but being gracious and kind to us, like the loving Father, the loving Son, the sacrificing King that He is to give us life and life abundantly and eternal life. As we finish and close today, I I hope that you've enjoyed the series and the different look or take. Sometimes we need to look at scripture differently. Like looking at what Jesus didn't say in order to better understand what he has said. At the same time, if you're hearing me this morning online or here and you haven't began a relationship with Jesus Christ, you saw in scripture how simple it is. That man began a relationship with Jesus Christ that lives on today in eternity because Jesus said the truth is. And it's really that easy. You have a lot more in front of you than that man did on that cross, even here on earth. And this very moment, as is pertinent, as it was for that criminal on the cross who was losing his life that day. I want to encourage you, if God's prompting anything in your heart, no matter your age, no matter how young or how old you are, no matter what your experiences are, church experiences or not, you saw that man. He had none, I believe. I had some as a kid. Because we had such a tough home life, when we didn't have other things, my dad was motivated to get us to church because he did have a hope of Jesus Christ in him that God could rescue some of the situation and that there was truth in the Bible and that there was good people at church and a good, healthy community to be around. And I'm grateful to my dad for it. But even some years of that and it being in my head and in my heart and things that I heard, I'm sorry, it hadn't reached my heart. And on that particular day at Sunday school, when the Sunday school teacher saw the hurt in my heart and she just said, listen, this is all it takes. It looks like this, like the picture I showed you. I leaped at the opportunity and it's changed everything about my life. I would encourage you to do that today. You can do that with a prayer team member at the finish of service here. You can come meet with a prayer team member. I'm happy to visit with you. Anybody here up front, is. chances are you know someone else here in the room. You can pray with them and start that relationship.